When he opens the door, says I'm home, be aware of the look in his eyes. They tell you the mood he's in. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show is Dissecting Male Supremacy, Kate Millett's Sexual Politics. We're listening to Bobby Martin's For the Love of Him, Make Him Your Reason for Living. All our music tonight is from the 1970 Billboard Top 100, extending the discussion from last week's show on the political power of music. Kate Millett's 1970 book Sexual Politics is the classic text of second wave feminism finding sexism and subjection inherent in the institutions of marriage and the nuclear family. The ideology used to support this is located in the foundational sexual myths of patriarchy, Pandora's box, and Eve's disobedience of the father in Genesis, and central to the 20th century narrative of what makes the lesser sex lesser is Freud's ascription of this so-called inferiority to penis envy and the castration complex. While Millet's arguments and examples seem unassailable, did they have any effect on the social and political mores of the last 50 years? That's the focus of the following conversation I had with Maggie Doherty, who published an essay in the New Republic last March called What Kate Did, and more recently the essay Yes, All Women, stating feminists do not have to be ideologically pure to be radical. Maggie Doherty is lecturer at Harvard University and working on a book called The Equivalents, about a remarkable friend group of five women writers and artists who met at the Radcliffe Institute in the early 1960s. Kate Millett is a feminist, activist, writer, visual artist, teacher, and human rights advocate, and a 2013 inductee into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York, the birthplace of the American suffragette movement. Perhaps the most amazing consequence of the publication of Sexual Politics is the notice it received in the popular press. In the same year the book was published, Kate Millett appeared on the cover of Time magazine in a portrait by Alice Neal. 46 years later, the racist, misogynist Donald Trump was chosen Time's Person of the Year and the 45th President of the United States. He's a man and a man has to try Let him run, let him fall, let him cry his world won't fall apart If you take him into your heart For the love Make him your reason for living Give all the love you can give him All the love you can Well, Maggie Doherty, welcome to Interchange. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Great. Um, so uh, we're talking today about Kate Millett's Sexual Politics, published in 1970. Um, and uh, the book I have in my hands is Columbia University Press uh, edition uh, that came out in 2016. So there's kind of a resurgence maybe mm-hmm. in, in this book in particular. So uh, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about it. But I, I did find it uh, fascinating and revealing and, and hard to argue with in many places. But let's, let's start with, with the book itself. It happened, like I said, it was published in the 70s, uh, 1970. Mm-hmm. What kind of reception did it get? 
Well, so the fascinating thing about sexual politics, as opposed to other feminist manifestos of the era, Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex, for instance, is that this was Kate Millett's dissertation. Mm. She was a graduate student. Mm -hmm. um, she was studying literature at Columbia. She had had a, uh, an important role in the 1968 student protest, and her teaching had been taken away. So anyone who's a graduate student today knows exactly how awful it is when suddenly you have no income and no teaching. Mm. Um, and so she turned all of her energy into her dissertation. She expanded a conference talk she'd given the prior year at Cornell, and she came up with this very wide-ranging um, and eclectic study of literature and thought um, with an interest in how do these intellectual traditions and current literary text perpetuate the idea of patriarchy. And patriarchy was a fairly sort of new term at the time, the mm. idea that there is a way of thinking, a way of living that um, institutionalizes and perpetuates a system of sex class um, oppression. This is outside That's of something like uh, religious patriarchy. I think it was being used in, in a more sort of secular context mm, okay. uh, at the time, mm -hmm. that it was this was sort of going away from just the kind of origin stories, the mm -hmm. sort of Judeo-Christian origin stories and thinking more carefully about how um, how how do ideas and language and stories and images create a certain kind of idea of male dominance or mm -hmm. male supremacy. Mm -hmm. So she approaches um, some popular contemporary male writers with this question in mind. And she draws on a really wide range of intellectual reference points and historical studies and anthropo anthropological studies in order to kind of build a context for talking about that writing. And that was also a really revolutionary thing to do at the time. So at the moment that Millet's writing her dissertation, the dominant way of reading is a way that people sometimes call new critical, a way of thinking about text as sort of self-contained mm -hmm. and closed off from history and closed off from the world around them. Still in the 70s. Still in the 70s. Okay. We're, we're right before French theory comes in. Mm -hmm. We're mm -hmm. a little, we're, we're before um, a kind of return to thinking about history, which comes in the 1980s. So we're still in the legacy of the 50s, I mm -hmm. think, at this, at this point in okay. time. Mm -hmm. So she, um, and she says this right off the bat, that she thinks it's critical to con consider literary texts both as affecting the world around them and being affected by it, mm -hmm. that these exist in the world and that they have a role to play in how we live. Mm. Um, so this is her, so she writes this, this very, very wide ranging study um, that is ultimately a strong critique of some of the really popular male writers at the time, Norman Mailer, Henry Miller, uh, D.H. Lawrence. And um, she submits this to her committee, her committee of advisors. One of them says that reading the dissertation was like sitting with your testicles in a nutcracker. Mm. Um, <laughs> and she manages to get the book published by a trade press, but really has no expectations about what's going to happen. Again, she's a graduate student with sort of no employment prospects at the moment. She's also a sculptor. She's used to kind of living a little bit um, uh, precariously. Mm. And she gets, she gets the book published. She has no expectations about the response. And the response is incredible. Hmm. Um, the book goes through four printings. She ends up making $30,000 off of the book, which at the time was, was no small amount of money. Mm -hmm. 
And more than that, she's catapulted into the limelight at a moment when the feminist movement really is drawing a lot of mainstream attention. So even though there are all of these sort of cells of organizers and activists that are kind of subcultural, at, in 1970, this movement is drawing the attention of major magazines like Time, mm-hmm. uh, is drawing the attention of major intellectuals like Irving Howe. Uh, it, so suddenly her intervention, her, um, effort to crystallize some of the things that people are thinking about makes her really famous in a way that she's not prepared for. Hmm. Do you get a sense that, that, that this book in particular did crystallize what was going on? I know you mentioned Shulamith Firestone as well in the dialectics of sex, I think is the name of that, that particular yeah. book. And, uh, it's still in print, but what was it about this particular a book that that really did sort of wake up the larger public to it, or at least the media to to it, you know, or the complex of um, um, tastemakers and thinkers in in the media landscape. Well, I think there are sort of two things. There's a broader idea, which is the idea I was talking about before, that we might consider literature as part of power structures, mm-hmm. and this is a really sort of um, important idea. It's not entirely new that there's, you know, Marxist criticism had has been around for a while. And people, uh, I'm thinking of some of the writing coming out in the mid-century about race relations in America. There was mm-hmm. the criticism around that was aware of the ways that these stories were sort of speaking to or commenting upon current race relations. But so I think the, the broad effort to sort of think of literature as of a piece with other means of oppression what drew a lot of attention. Hmm. But more than that, I think, or specific to this text, is Millet was going after uh, writers who had been held up as revolutionary in their own right. Um, so she's writing, so her critique of these male writers like like Miller and Mailer comes in the aftermath of um, the 1960 trial of Lady, Ch- Lady Chatterley's lover. Hmm which says um, that texts that are titillating or obscene can be published if they have some so- redeeming social or literary value. I think mm-hmm. that's the, the language of the, of the ruling. So the writing of writers like Lawrence and Miller, they're published by, so you know, this ruling comes down, they're published by Grove Press, and they're seen as really liberatory as really kind of uh, revolutionary and radical in their willingness to depict sex so explicitly, heterosexual sex mm-hmm. so explicitly. So in a way, Millet is going after not only writers who are sort of widely regarded, lionized or, or not quite canonized at this point, but popular and celebrated. She's not just going after writers who are considered good. She's going after writers who are considered progressive, mm-hmm. maybe, or or radical in some way. And I think the question she's asking as she analyzes their writing is, in what ways is this particular kind of representation of sex or the kind of sex that's getting represented in these books revolutionary and for whom? Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Maggie Doherty, author of a New Republic essay on the literary legacy of Kate Millett's 1970 classic of second wave feminism, Sexual Politics. 
I think that she she's a part of the uh, national the um, national organization. The national for women. organization for women. Yeah. So so in in that was founded in 1966, and the National Organization mm-hmm. for Women. That's uh, uh, Betty Friedan mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. founded that, and it, I, I believe uh, Millet was working in it at the time as well. Or working around it or something oh, like that? Oh, I wonder. I mean, mm-hmm. she was involved She was involved with a range of feminist groups at the time. Mm-hmm. I know that she was part of the New York Radical Women mm-hmm. and also part of the radical feminist group Red Stockings. Red Stockings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I, it, 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 she may have also been involved sure, involved sure. with now as well. Well, I know that at least, you know, a lot of people, if we're going to track these things, um, you know, in terms of where they where they walk through the, the sort of... Um, uh, investigation of, of 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 patriarchy, investigation of male supremacy, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, Simone de Beauvoir's *The Second Sex* is, mm-hmm. I suppose, the the tome that, be, in a sense, begins much of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And walking through to, to Betty Friedan's book and then into into Kate Millett's *Sexual Politics* as well. Was mm-hmm. Millett, you know, consciously addressing the the same kinds of things? <sighs> Well, it's interesting. Um, I think you're really right to point to the second sex as a really foundational text for a lot of the American feminist thinkers who followed from from that from the moment of its publication. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of interesting story about about that book. Um, that was also not an expected success. I think um, I think Beauvoir did not know how well it would sell in France, um, and it ended up in America because Blanche Knopf thought that it was actually a high end sex manual, <laughs> and sort of insisted that her husband pay someone, her husband Alfred Alfred A. Knopf, Knopf pay someone to translate it. Mm. Um, so that was also a very unexpected uh, development. But um, you know, the vicissitudes of, of what? Uh, I don't even know what to say, right? I mean, the accidents. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. the erotic. But so. So I think the thing that Millet shares with Beauvoir is a real suspicion of the natural mm. and of biological as a kind of underpinning for the social order. Gotcha. So Beauvoir has that line in the second sex, um, one is not born, but one becomes a woman. Mm-hmm. And part of what she's exploring or what she's saying there and exploring elsewhere in the book is uh, both the idea that womanhood is something other than simply having you know, the secondary sex characteristics of, of, of a particular individual, that womanhood and for her, for uh, femininity in particular, traditional femininity is something that has been constructed, mm-hmm. something is upheld through various social practices and through various sort of intellectual and narrative mm-hmm. and philosophical ways of, of talking about women and talking about gender. Um, and Millet shares this kind of skepticism of things that are natural or things that are naturalized. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is where I see her come or that is where I see her connecting back to some of the ideas in the second sex when she is looking both at um, the Victorian literary intellectual scene uh, and asking uh, of some of these writers and thinkers, why do they think that because things are one way, they couldn't be another way? Mm. And I think that's when you were speaking earlier about the kind of excitement of this uh, of this historical moment, I think part of that excitement has to do with the belief that the world could be ordered differently. Mm-hmm. And the discovery or the insistence that conditions that seem 
immutable and natural are actually historical right. and so contingent and could mm -hmm. be changed. I do like that, that, and it was a big part of my enjoyment of the book, was the skewering of Freud as well, mm -hmm. simply mm -hmm. because of, you know, the pseudoscience that she just says, this, this is, as you say, an application of, of nature, you know, with, mm. <laughs> without any actual... Um, you know, science behind it. Uh, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. you say, you argue from uh, from the social observation of people's lives rather than trying to find causes. Right. I mean, I think the case of Freud or the influence of Freud, or maybe not even influence, but the p position of Freudian thinking mm -hmm. in feminism in this period is is interesting because I think it's both productive and the object of critique. Mm -hmm. So in Millet's book, it is the object of critique. And I think there's an, um, a particular social context that we should think about that in. Mm. So at the time, so in the 1960s, when Freudianism becomes influential in America, it is mobilized um, by institutions, by medical institutions to um, thwart female ambition. We, <laughs> I feel comfortable saying that. Sure, no, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you have all of these women going into psychoanalysis and talking about uh, feelings of frustration, feelings of dissatisfaction, and being told that the problem did not lie with the world, but the problem lay with them. Mm -hmm. That they were malfunctioning in some way. That they were not finding satisfaction where they as women as women should. Mm -hmm. um, this is a little bit like Betty Friedan's The Problem That Has has No Name. And uh, Friedan is also critiquing Freud and the feminine mystique. She's also calling attention to this way that certain psychiatric practices convinced women that their misery was a sign that they were not doing something right, right. not a sign that the world was not right for them. Mm -hmm. So that I think I think that's where critiquing Freud is so important. The critiques advanced by someone like Friedan or someone like Millet, I think even as they're attacking Freud directly, I sort of see behind that critique a an effort to go work against this kind of patriarchal psychiatric pra practice. Hmm. At the same time, though, I think it's important to remember that there are some of Millet's colleagues, or not really colleagues, I guess more comrades in the movement, found Freud to be immensely liberating. Um, I'm thinking here of one of her fellow Red Stockings, Ellen Willis, mm -hmm. who was a you know music critic and organizer and uh, a Marxist and a Freudian and thought that Freud's writing and thinking about sex and sexuality was hugely emancipatory. Mm -hmm. So I think I think Freud Freud sort of and, and you see this in the way that that Freudian thinking has continued to be productive for people um, in this in the decades since that that I think there there's something without being um, entirely faithful to his ideas, there is something that's useful about him, um, as long as that utility is not being co-opted by people institutions who are trying to keep women unfree. Time for a break. Our music is Evil Ways by Santana, another from the Billboard Top 100 from 1970. You've been listening to Dissecting Male Supremacy with scholar and writer Maggie Doherty. When we come back, we'll turn to the original narratives of so-called female inferiority. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. My guest today is scholar and writer Maggie Doherty. Last March, she wrote a piece in the New Republic called What Kate Did, about Kate Millett and the literary legacy of her 1970 feminist classic, Sexual Politics. In our first segment, we talked about the critical and popular response to this book, putting its author on the cover of Time magazine and a portrait done by Alice Neal. We also talked about the ambivalent response of feminist groups to the work of Sigmund Freud, some finding it liberatory and others, like Millet, finding it a pseudoscientific Victorian anxiety complex about the tepidity of male sexual prowess. For our middle segment, we'll discuss the story of the fall of man, squarely settled onto the shoulders of the second sex. It's hard to have conversation about uh, a lot of these things because they, they spiral out of control in a, lot, in a lot of ways, right? So if we bring Freud into it, we, you know, there's a lot of Freud to talk about, right? And, there is, uh, yes. Uh, generally, uh, you know, the things that I've read uh, have more to do with melancholy and anxiety um, mm-hmm. uh, rather than the theories of sex, which I just kind of walked away from, you know, right. as, soon as, as soon as everything is penis envy. You got to figure there's a problem there, um, but there's there's a part of uh, you know that that's that's part of this book too is trying to understand why is sex a problem, mm. you know why is there um, a hierarchy of dominance that 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 we can think about beyond I guess the the, the biological right which mm-hmm. we which mm-hmm. we tend to want to just look at people and say man is larger. And mm-hmm. stronger and dominant. Now the rest of the world will fall in line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, you know you have to work really hard. Uh, and, and it thinks and it feels like the Freud, at least the section in the book that that she deals with Freud is that she's tracking Freud, trying to make new. I guess put put uh, what old wine into a new bottle, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, the same argument, but said in a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's how it feels throughout. Um, that she's kind of exposing these this acceptance of a patriarchal myth, and mm-hmm. and and how it then sort of invests everything else within it with the same with the same framework in a, in, a, in a way. And maybe I'm not making that clear at all. Uh, maybe you can help. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think what's 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 interesting and challenging about this book is its eclecticism, is its intellectual eclecticism. And I think she I mean, I sort of sometimes picture her because I have been a Ph.D. student. I picture her as a frantic Ph.D. student mm-hmm. kind of scrambling to put this dissertation together and seeing all of these connections, um, but also not sort of being invested necessarily and getting the fullest account of each discipline that she engages with. I mean, that that's an impossibility. Like, no one is going to right. write a dissertation that does justice to the history of psychiatry, the history of anthropology, the history of, um, you know, gender policy in, in Western Europe. And this is actually what she's trying to do. It's mm-hmm. a hugely, hugely ambitious project, one that would never be accepted in any English department these days. This is not something, mm-hmm. I, I can guarantee you, this is not something one could do anymore. Um, And so I think her effort in bringing all of these things together is in part simply to show that all of these things should be brought together. 
Um, and again, I think that her emphasis remains on the literary. That is what she's most right. interested in. And so in a way, when she's toggling between Engels and Freud and Nazi Germany and Ruskin and Mill, she's kind of fleshing out or painting really thickly the broader historical and intellectual context that we have to read someone like Henry Miller within. That mm. it doesn't work just to read Henry Miller in isolation and think that was entertaining or that was interesting or that was titillating. We have to consider that his book is coming at the end of a long history of sex-based oppression. We have Mm -hmm. to consider the way his book might intersect with other theories of gender and sexuality that are oppressive. Mm. And that her effort here is is synthetic. It's an effort to bring all of these different um, traditions and stories and narratives into conversation so that we might think more broadly about what it means to tell any kind of story about women and gender and sex within this broader context. Mm, that's good. It's uh, it's one of those uh, again those those things we have to kind of uh, imagine that all things that we create uh, and that have cultural significance or relevance to us um, do come from somewhere and do speak, even if we don't intend them to necessarily speak in a particular way, and and maybe not let things off the hook so right. easily right that's that's the key to me frequently is that you know we watch tv and we give we we let our brains be sort of uh, captured by whatever's happening in front of visually mm-hmm. far more than i think literarily but mm-hmm. uh, but um this is the case you know in trying to understand why you would read a henry miller book in the first place mm-hmm. i mean I, <laughs> <laughs> well he, he was immensely you know he was immensely yeah respected. no but you that's that's important right to to say well this you're not reading henry miller in the 60s you know you you're i'm reading it now and thinking oh my god are you kidding me um <laughs> Many women I know who love who love Henry Miller, and yeah. I you know I I will say that there are moments where I have enjoyed Norman Mailer, <laughs> Philip Roth, and I think I mean I think right. sort of buried, and this is not an argument that Millet makes explicitly, but I think is implicit in her critique is a question about identification mm-hmm. when you're reading, right. and is a question about who um, you are supposed to identify with, mm-hmm. and who when we teach literature we expect. Our students to identify with. Um, and this is, I think this is language we use more now because we are in a time where identity is talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. But I think that her her sort of question as she as she puts authors like Miller under the microscope is to say, let's look at this assuming that we are a reader who does not identify with the male protagonist. Mm-hmm. Let us assume that we see ourselves in the receptacle for the male protagonist, the, liter- the literal receptacle for mm-hmm. the male protagonist's adventures. And then how does this look to us? Right. Um, and I think this is a question that we are still sort of, um, if not wrestling with, at least asking quite a bit um, when we th- talk about art and culture. Who who has made it, and who is the audience for it, and where does that audience end up positioning themselves in relation to it? <laughs> This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're listening to the Paris Sisters with All Through the Night. We'll take a quick housekeeping break and return to more with Maggie Doherty on sexual politics.
Now back to Interchange and dissecting male supremacy with Maggie Doherty on the literary and political legacy of Kate Millett's 1970 feminist classic, Sexual Politics. If we, if we take some time to look at the history, which I think we need to in terms of the book, right? The book walks us through um, at least... Uh, well, it goes back to, to origins, as, as we said, in some sense, right, right? with uh, with these these first stories, like uh, the uh, what we we don't even name Eve in this particular story. We call it the fall of man or the fall of Adam, mm-hmm. right? It's Adam's mm-hmm. fall. And it's, you know, it's uh, it's an Eve story more than an Adam story. Um, but and, and Pandora's box, which um, I guess in, in my, you know, I, I never really thought about it together so much mm-hmm. until I was like, oh, well, of course, um, these make sense together. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so she goes from, from those particular stories, which are clearly, um, again, putting, putting the onus of, um, sexuality, a, a, on the, on the feminine, on the female and making mm-hmm. it an evil in the world, <laughs> right? It's like starting out in, in that negative space. It's hard to imagine you would ever get a, uh, you know, a chance in the world as a woman. Well, this is, I think, one of the really interesting things about revisiting works like sexual politics and other feminist thinking from this moment is the insistence that sex-based oppression is more permanent, more durable, harder to remove, mm-hmm. um, and has a different kind of longevity than other forms of oppression. And you see this in Beauvoir, you see this in Firestone. And I think it is really a difficult um, argument for us to wrestle with, or at least for me to wrestle with from this particular vantage point. Because on the one hand, as, as you were just walking through Millet's evidence, on the one hand, that's quite convincing, right? Mm-hmm. That there's a way that sex-based oppression is found so often at so many different moments in history and so many disparate societies that it's hard not to think of it as the sort of originary form of oppression. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think that um, from our vantage point, I think we can see some of the problems or flaws in that way of thinking about um, womanhood, sex-based oppression, and feminism, um, which is that there is something difficult about uh, erasing the differences between women who have other sorts of oppression that they're dealing with, Um, which is to say that a woman of color might experience sex-based oppression differently than a white woman, uh, that class differences matter when you're talking about how uh, sex-based oppression manifests and functions. And I think um, in the decades since these women were writing, that has become um, a more accepted way of thinking about liberation movements, let's say more broadly, that we have to sort of grapple with what we now think of as intersectionality, Mm -hmm. that we have to grapple with differences among the movement. And so, uh, or within the movement, different ways that different actors are positioned differently. Um, And so I think there's something that's both very convincing and stimulating and exciting about the grandiosity of these claims Mm -hmm. about patriarchy and sex-based oppression, but I think there is a way that um, they do paint a little bit with too too wide of a brush. Well, I think she admitted it herself, right? That right. She, yeah. <laughs> uh, but in some sense, it's hard to, again, these are not, mm, uh, I, 
I think that I struggle with, like, if you imagine that the, a large part, and, and again, I'm just going to talk about, uh, I guess, the U.S. Uh, in my <laughs> own sense of the U.S. Um, but if you imagine that a good portion of this country, you know, calls itself Christian, uh, mm-hmm. believes in God, believes in, and a good portion believe in angels and the devil as well, right. that there is, uh, there is a, a seems to me that we can we can say this this story and there are very few stories in the bible that i think many christians know well mm-hmm. i say that you know um with all due respect it's a it's a long it's it's a lot of books it's a lot of there's a lot of bible there but uh-huh. there are stories that are told that we all kind of know if we have any christian background whatsoever genesis and and the mm-hmm. creation mm-hmm. and the fall these are the primary stories and uh, on through you know to their rewriting in milton and and how Having a literary culture that 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 carries them through as well, and I went to many many classes in college where you were it was insisted that you had to know all these religious mm-hmm. texts as well because you couldn't read literature well mm-hmm, unless mm-hmm. you knew these template stories basically. And mm-hmm. if we think of them as template stories, then we think that they're sort of stuck in there somehow, right? They're they're a part of how we sort of interpret a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to think that that's that's not too broad to to apply that particular um, first idea, I suppose. Right. I mean, I think I think I think you're you're right to point out that there is a certain canon of art and thought that has been dominant for, for years and years and years. And I think one of the reasons, right, Millet's work is so exciting is even though she is focused on cont- her contemporaries, writers who are cont- contemporaries, she's arguing that the canon, that the accepted mm-hmm. um, text should be critiqued and that they, they, they should be critiqued on terms of sexual politics, that mm-hmm. that is a valid form of reading literature. But I think in addition to critique, I think that's one response. I guess I think there are two responses to recognizing that the bedrock of literary or aesthetic or intellectual education, intellectual education, um, is, is patriarchal in nature. And one response is what we see Millet doing, which is sort of analyzing, dissecting, criticizing, returning to texts that are foundational and problematic, to use your word, <laughs> and showing how and why. Um, I think the other response that we also see, and we see, I think, more of this uh, in the 80s and 90s and also and through today, is to play with those narratives and to rewrite those narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on this long piece on Angela Carter right now, mm-hmm. so I'm going to take us a little bit away from, from no, the U.S. context. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so Carter in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s starts rewriting um, the very narratives that you're that you were sort of alluding to before these foundational myths whether they're judeo-christian or whether they're just folkloric Mm -hmm. she has this book of erotic fairy tales the bloody chamber where she rewrites all of those fairy tales which exist basically as warnings to women about their sexuality Mm -hmm. that's basically the function of, Mm -hmm. of a fairy tale and she rewrites it in a way that doesn't suggest that erotic life must be eliminated Hmm. but suggests that it can still uh, be pleasurable and be present, um, it, but also not be used as a tool of oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we even see this with someone like uh, Chris Krause, who has become a kind of cult figure among um, young women, especially today, that her her book, I Love Dick, mm-hmm. is all about taking those uh, 
stories and paradigms about the way heterosexual romance works and playing with them and rewriting them. And so I think, I guess what I'm saying is I think we need both. I think we both need the kind of critique that Millet suggests and performs here, the the way of sort of returning to some of these uh, stories and authors and saying, actually, this is a problem. Actually, we shouldn't just read them. We as sort of women writers and thinkers can take some of these stories and, and play with them and rewrite them and make them mean something different. It's time for another break. Our music is Band of Gold by Frida Payne. When we return to dissecting male supremacy, we'll gauge the success of the feminist movement since Kate Millett published Sexual Politics in 1970. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFH. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is centered on the classic of second wave feminism, sexual politics, written by a sculptor and PhD candidate in English at Columbia University, Kate Millett. Our final segment takes a look at the current state of sexual politics in America. If we just take the election to the U.S. presidency of Donald Trump, noted and seemingly proud misogynist, it's easy to think that the most achieved is still the freedom for a woman in America to smoke Virginia Slims in public. The truth is, this is a male supremacist society. I don't know, if, I guess it may be a male supremacist world. I'm, I don't know much about mm-hmm. it. But, but uh, at least that it, we could say this one is male supremacist. I think we won't get any complaint. Will we get a complaint? Like I don't. I, <laughs> I mean, I think I think the the MRAs would complain. I think. Well, they might, and they do a they lot of it. But I don't. Un- yeah, I don't understand any of that, honestly. But uh, um, well, I think you know. I think one question, mm-hmm. sort of off of what you're saying, that I think one question that Millet's work raises for me, um, sort of thinking about her influence, is have we? So she's talking about the the need to look at cultural representation of women and gender and sex and think about it carefully 
um, and, and say when it's wrong, say when it is um, perpetuating or representing oppression. I think one question we have to ask now is have we gone so far in that direction that we're sort of too focused on representation and mm. not focused enough on structural change, on on sort of policy, on uh, changing not just the way we write and think and talk about gender and sexuality and uh, sexual politics, but also how we live them. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Rebecca Mead in that in that new edition raised. I think she asked a version of this question, um, and I'm reminded of a recent book I read, Jessica Crispin's book um, about about why I think the, t- the, the, the title is "Why I'm Not a Feminist," and it's a critique of current. Uh, feminist, the current feminist movement, and one one of the ways she she one of the things she objects to, she says that fem- feminism today seems just like a constant conversation about which TV show is a good TV show and which TV show is a bad TV show. Hmm. Um, and I think in a way it actually speaks to Millet's influence that her way of reading and her way of thinking about art and culture has been so influential that we have these debates all the time now. That we we talk when a new movie or TV show or book gets released, we are very ready to think and talk about whether it represents women, sexual sexual politics, gender in a way that is um, uh, perpetuating patriarchy or not. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's it's a question worth asking: Is too much of our energy going into those debates mm-hmm. and not enough of it? going into other forms of change. Um, you know, the politics of it is what's uh, essential in some sense, mm-hmm. right? So that if, if the literature can can continue the under character, I suppose, of, of this thinking process, you know, we re- read and watch TV that constantly shows us these mm-hmm. misogynistic ways that, that it bleeds into how we act in our politics mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. our, our bold politics even. Um, the idea, obviously, we just had a, a possibly a um, uh, a, a referendum on on the, a female as a leader, right? right. Uh, uh, and you know you can question this quite a bit. It was a difficult, ridiculous uh, election, and mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton is is probably not the best woman to combat <laughs> some uh-huh. of these things. You know, it's uh, again to use the word problematic. Uh, uh, it definitely uh, just calls up all these issues. But in some mm-hmm. sense, it did create that uh, it did sort of draw all those anti-woman things out mm-hmm. of the woodwork mm-hmm. per usual, right? Sure, uh, very much it, so. Yeah, made it very clear that we still live in that kind of, you know, it's like we don't live in a post-racial world. We don't live in a post-misogynist world. Uh, the mm-hmm. question is, at the end of this book, Rebecca Mead in that, in that essay says, you know, what's, what's really different? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, when we were talking earlier, I said, you know, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. Still, still pesticides all over the place. Still herbicides all over the place. Worse than ever, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no difference. Maybe, maybe the difference is that male doctors will now tell their female patients that they have cancer. Um, <laughs> not, know. not a small thing. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and this is part of the. Yeah, this is part of the, uh, the progressive. Oh, I would hate to call it a myth, but the progressive, you know, idea that we make these subtle little changes towards doing good in the world, I suppose. But uh, this is a revolutionary idea, you know, to to imagine that you have to change the very structure of society to make mm-hmm. equality possible. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to skip over, I really didn't want to skip over Engels and Mill simply because mm. it was a, uh, to me, again, a fascinating look at two, two advanced thinkers, 
right? Um, mm-hmm. Mill, one of the first uh, really feminists, I suppose, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and uh, wrote, uh, this, was it The Subjection of Women? Is that the name of that? Yes, that I think so. Yeah, that essay, book-length essay. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Engels as well saying, you know, the, the, the problems rest in, in the family, the domination yep. of the family. And here we are okay. with the, this is a standard, you know, conservative right-wing trope that the, yep. the best way to be in life is to have families. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, so, so we're not, I don't think we've moved anywhere, to be, to be honest with you. I'm not uh-huh. sure that we've made any changes and, and are these cosmetic changes, the empowerment of sex as representative, uh, sexual identity, as we say, uh, doesn't seem to have caused anyone to, to not be dominated by men still. Well, I think this is where the organizer in me, um, you know, calls upon the optimism that the organizer needs, right? To, uh, to and I, I think I, I would not disagree that patriarchy remains and it remains a problem. But I also think, you know, there's a tendency towards left melancholy mm-hmm. that I think is very uh, difficult to shake when problems endure. But I also think it's really important for the left to recognize victories and progress that have been made. And I don't think that we are in the same place we were in 1970. And this is sort of a version of what I was saying before, that in a way, parts of Millet's thinking, parts of the, the, the thinking and the practices of second wave feminists and radical feminists even in particular, have become so successful and so dominant that they're a little bit just the water we swim in. Hmm. And I don't think we always see... Um, that as as a victory of some kind, in part because sometimes uh, that those, those thoughts or those ideas are co-opted or repurposed. Um, but I don't know. I don't know that I would say that we haven't come very. We haven't come any distance from 1970. I think that uh, some of the problems remain, both in terms of. Um, specifically sex-based oppression, but also different ways that, uh, different ways that class and race also kind of prevent, um, access or freedom for large swaths of the the population. Mm -hmm. But, um, I don't know, I guess I think it's, I think it's important to recognize the differences between, between that moment and our own and that the problems are different. Mm -hmm. I mean, one way of thinking about this is, uh, to go back to a point we were talking about earlier about what feminism is, who it serves, who it should be for, that um, a, if not broader definition of feminism, but a different definition of feminism might see the organizing done um, by Black Lives Matter, for instance, as a feminist uh, movement mm-hmm. and as a kind of feminist, you know, that like that this is this is a movement that is um organized by women and queer women and that this, this, there, there has been a certain kind of, um, I wouldn't want to use the term success, but recognition of this as a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, or I'm thinking of, uh, a lot of the women I know in the labor movement who are, are fighting a hard fight, but are winning small victories. Thinking of the, um, the hotel workers in Nevada who have, uh, for, for the Union Unite here, that's a largely, that's a movement largely led by women and that has had um, recent victories. And so I, I guess I want to sort of recognize those, even if some of the broader problems um, remain, that, they're, that, that they're, they're, I just think it's important to recognize those moments as, as moments of success. Mm-hmm. 
This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Maggie Doherty, author of a New Republic essay on the literary legacy of Kate Millett's 1970 classic of second wave feminism, Sexual Politics. The issue that that strikes me always in 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 this situation is that when um, when I read things like this, or we uh, and, and and this is one that you you know we talked a little bit on email about uh, reading Dworkin. Um, mm-hmm. My own reading of Dworkin is that it's you know slaps you in the face. I mean, it's a, intentionally right. It's a very aggressive, you know, men are the problem, and let's mm-hmm. not have anything to do with them, uh, or you know even let's kill them all. I mean, there uh, I read her land. Let's get rid of the men. Um, mm-hmm. It makes sense. It takes thousands of years to do it, but it seems to be a better thing, <laughs> right? To say all men are now lo- no longer in, in positions of power. Now just women. Uh, uh, now just black women. We've seen that that hasn't. You know, I think that kind of, um, and I, I and I, I think that kind of what we might call like essentialism. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen that that's not working, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, no one would say Marine Le Pen. Maybe not. No mm-hmm. one. I. I will own the statement. <laughs> I would not say that Marine Le Pen is a feminist icon or hero. I would not say that by virtue of the fact that she's a woman, that she is a person who will rule benignly. I think, you know, she's dangerous. And I think, you know, and this was, I think this was also part of the conversation about Hillary Clinton. I Mm -hmm. think there were those on the left who would push back on the idea that she was good for feminism or even good for women generally. Um, and that her her gender identity was not necessarily synonymous with her having progressive policies. So I think I don't I don't I, mm-hmm. I agree with you. I don't think it's as simple as sort of eliminating the men and replacing them with the women. Um, which isn't to say that you know patriarchy is not still real and gender oppression is not still real, but that that unfortunately the solution to it is going to be a little bit more complicated. Right, right. I do, I do think uh, Millet addresses somewhere in there the subjected class operates in dependency. So you know that's again mm-hmm. I think Dworkin has a book Right Wing Women uh, as well. So you have you know have the dependent mm-hmm. class that speaks out for for patriarchy as well. And this is something that the movement at the time in 1970 was really divided on, um, was the degree to which patriarchy is internalized. Mm. So you had women like Firestone and Ellen Willis saying, actually, we think that there is, I think they might have even used the term brainwashing, that there is some way that women believe in or are complicit with patriarchy, that they are, they, they share the beliefs of their oppressors. Mm-hmm. And then you have feminists like Kathy Sarah Child saying, no, no, women are making strategic and rational decisions as economic actors. They know that it is better to be married than unmarried in this society, and that is why they marry. Hmm. And then Firestone and Willis saying, no, women actually love men. And and we need to sort of deal with that and get to the root of that. Hmm. Um, So I think I think the I think it is it is unsurprising that, um, you know, we've been talking so much about the power of story and the power of, of narrative and metaphor and language here. It is unsurprising that, um, people internalize these ideas and internalize these beliefs and that working through them, um, is difficult. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Right. That's, uh, that's the truth. Uh, you know, it's just, um, it's just difficult, like you say, to to imagine, you know, um, a, what has been. Again, uh, this is coming from Millet's book as well. The, mm-hmm. the, you know, the proposition that the insects in in sex itself, the you know, the male positions himself as dominant mm-hmm. uh, in the you know the actual truth of sexual 
um, capabilities, capacities, the, the female has a greater capacity for sexual pleasure, uh, for orgasm, things of mm-hmm. this nature, right? And so it does seem to me that frequently the, the stories men tell are stories that are uh, that are in some way tr- trying to make up for that, right? <laughs> for that lack. There's generally that sense, right? That you, and, and she, she actually tells the, uh, I guess talks about an experiment by Eric Erickson, um, where he asks a group of 150 boys, 150 girls, I think teens, uh, to put together some sort of tableau of, of uh, toys on a table to represent some kind of action scene or something like that. And and they, of course, conform to their social norms, right? The girls do uh, mm-hmm. domestic scenes. The boys uh, use police officers and do car chases and things of this nature. Um, but one of the things that she points out there is, you know, they're building towers and things like that, uh, mm-hmm. things like this. And I think at that point she expresses, well, it seems to me they're making up, this is like the the sports car metaphor, right? They're making up for the fact (laughs) that their own architecture will not stand that tall, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And there is this sense, right, that the stories that you tell about the the power of male sexuality is is a kind of – Mm, uh, like a beta male story almost maybe or something like that right (laughs) that you're just you're just trying to make up for the fact that you know you're going to fail um Uh that's that's just how i read it well i think one thing that that i appreciate about um about firestone for instance Mm. is that she she is criticizing practices of of romance Mm-hmm. Um, really romance. I mean, I think that the cha- the chapter in which he's talking about heterosexual relations is called romance. Um, in this way, she's sort of a, a little bit like Beauvoir, that the, the problem is traditional romance, the problem is traditional femininity. Mm-hmm. But she has this moment, I think it's at the end of the chapter, where she says, you know, some worry that feminism wants to do with beauty and do it with desire. But the truth of the matter is, is who doesn't love beauty? Who doesn't love desire? Who doesn't love sex? What we want is to liberate them mm-hmm. from these uh, from these histories and these institutions. Uh, you know, Eros is wonderful and there's plenty of it and we want it to be redistributed and diffused throughout society. Mm. And that is sort of, I think, uh, I think the way I even see Millet working a little bit here is the problem is not sex necessarily the problem is the way sex interlocks with power Mm -hmm. or the way sex perpetuates power and that is why she has within this book her her chapter on Janae Mm -hmm. where she sort of says Janae you know Janae recognizes this and is both sort of laying bare the power dynamics behind sex and possibly even uh refigure reconfiguring them but um but I don't see see these these thinkers as necessarily thinking that heterosexual sex is can only be uh, oppressive mm-hmm. or can only be violent, but that what we need to do is take eros and desire and sex and love outside of or liberate it from these other structures of oppression. Your love is fading. I feel it fading. Uh, your love is fading. I feel it fading. Uh, your love is fading. Woman, I feel it fading. That's our show. We're listening to Rare Earths. I know I'm losing you. A testament to the crazy-making power of possessive desire. And it's all your fault, baby. 
Thanks to Maggie Doherty for joining us today to talk about the literary legacy of Kate Millett's sexual politics. We'll link to her two New Republic essays on the website. Remember, you can download this show and other Interchange programs at wfhb.org news slash interchange. And send us comments and suggestions via our email address, interchange at wfhb.org. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. When I look into your eyes, a reflection of a face I see. belong to me